Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Daily Pravda. The Chinese Communist Party was founded in July 1921. What is the brightest and what about the darkest hour of the CCP and why? Is the party ashamed of something? And how long will Xi Jinping rule the party and the country? About the CCP's past, present and future, I talked to Rory Jurex. He is an assistant professor in Princeton Department of Politics and School of Public and International Affairs and the author of the book Making Autocracy Work, Representation and Responsiveness in Modern China. Why does he compare China's history to a pendulum? And what does he think about the Cold War with Beijing? Listen to our conversation. What do you think is the brightest and the darkest hour of the Chinese Communist Party and why? I would say, you know, there's there's for the brightest moment, there's many to choose from. But I would say probably the 2008 Beijing Olympics um, in the sense that it really signaled China's emergence on the global stage. It was a very impressive Olympics. China uh, did very well. And so that was sort of a heady moment for the CCP. And it also it was at a point when the CCP still kind of had a relatively, you know, kind of a soft, slightly softer version of authoritarianism than it does today. And so it, it had relatively good relations um, with other countries and so on and so forth. So I, I would say the high point probably for the CCP, in my opinion, would be 2008. Um, but that's, again, a Western perspective, because at that moment, the CCP was a little bit more palatable, slightly more than it is today. Low point, I mean, it's how, do we, how does one choose? You have the Great Leap famine, you have uh, where 20 to 40 million people died in a famine. You have the Cultural Revolution, where hundreds of thousands of people were killed through political persecution. You have the Tiananmen Square Massacre, where the party fired live ammunition on student protesters. Um, and you could argue today, with what's going on in Xinjiang, um, that's right in that territory. Certainly not the mass killing that we, we've seen or the mass um, death that we've seen in other periods of Chinese history, but in some sense more sinister and more disturbing in the sense that it's a, occurring in the modern era where the CCP, you know, isn't a fanatical party. It's, it's, it, this isn't Mao, this is, but, it, but nevertheless, we're seeing kind of these really disturbing human rights abuses emerge in the name of stability. And so, yeah, I, I think there, there's plenty of dark points for the CCP to, to be thinking about. But as you said, uh, this is maybe from the Western perspective. Is it possible to somehow identify how it is from the CCP perspective? Will it be also Beijing? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like an authoritarian stability perspective, I mean, people have predicted the fall of the CCP for a long time. If you go back, you you could find probably a dozen op-eds or pieces that predict the collapse of the CCP. And time and time again, the party has proven resilient and... You could argue that in some sense right now is a, is a high point for the CCP from its own perspective um, in the sense that it has largely gotten through the COVID crisis. It performed much better than most Western democracies. Um, there was that moment in the beginning where there was the outbreak um, and there was some threat of social instability at that moment, but then very quickly um, the China, China managed to get the, the virus relatively under control. Um, and 
that kind of buttress the narrative of sort of authoritarian efficiency and, and superior performance on some of these issues. Whether we agree with that narrative or not, that's a narrative that's certainly circulating in China. And if you look at public opinion data, it tends to suggest that support for the CCP is very high. It's been high for a long time, but it actually increased um, after the COVID crisis. And so here you have a, an authoritarian regime. Uh, the party is approaching its 100 year anniversary. It's been in power um, since 1949, which is a, just a, a huge historical anomaly in and of itself. Um, it's growing in power in the world stage. Um, so there's a lot for the party to be optimistic about. And, and in terms of domestic stability at home, it doesn't seem that the population at this moment um, is on the verge of revolution or poses a real threat. Um, and so I, I would say the party, you know, Xi Jinping and the party are probably feeling pretty confident right now about, about where they stand um, in China and on the world stage. Is there anything the party is ashamed of from its own perspective? This is a party that um, appears to really have no shame. I, I, I would say, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a party that tends to not admit its own mistakes, right? So that's sort of a key feature of an authoritarian system in general is the party will require its Chinese citizens to historically, you know, engage in re-education or, or um, self-criticism in order to have correct thoughts, right? So the party requires people to admit it's their mistakes, but the party tends to not admit its own mistakes and will often brush historical detail under the rug in order to preserve stability and, and kind of this aura of invincibility. Um, and so hard to say um, if the party has any regrets. I mean, the party is not a, a, a person either. And I would say individual Chinese leaders probably have, have some um, regret, but I don't, I don't think the regret is anything about kind of the repression. You know, the, I don't think there's regrets about real regret among senior leaders about what's happened in Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Tibet or Tiananmen, if you, we go down the kind of the list of the common concerns, because it's all been done in the name of preserving stability in China. And that, that's always been the core mantra and ethos of the party. Um, the party is above all and, and, and maintains stability and is ushering in a, a new era where China will lead on the global stage. And that's precisely what they've achieved. So you don't see a lot of the way in, in sort of public apologies or, or musings about regrets uh, among the CCP. No matter what we think about CCP, the fact is that this is simply the, the most successful communist party ever. Uh, so what do you consider the current main source of the CCP power? Well, we've, we've, um, People have tended to, to divide things into sort of three periods and three phases. Maybe the, the vision isn't so clean, but it's worth thinking about. I mean, in the Mao era, um, the source of the CCP's legitimacy and power was ideology and basically delivering on the promises that were made to the, the peasantry during the Chinese revolution um, and the massive redistribution and kind of the complete um, overturning of, of China's social structure that had been around since the imperial period. So you, they're empowering peasants and workers during that time, unfortunately with disastrous economic consequences because of mismanagement. But at that point in time, it was communism. It was, it was kind of Mao Zedong thought, Marxist-Leninism and so forth. Um, with Deng, we see the, of course, the emergence of a new era and where legitimacy is centered around performance. 
um, this concept of to get rich is glorious and, and some Chinese citizens are allowed to get rich and regions are allowed to get rich slightly earlier than others. That was the beginning of the economic miracle. And if you, if you, you know, preside over three decades of roughly 10% or more growth, that gets you a lot of uh, credibility and legitimacy with the population. And then the current phase, um, you know, of course, there's still a lot of performance based, what we would call performance based legitimacy, but there's always this question of can the growth machine last forever? And if it doesn't, what's in its place? And, and today people will say nationalism is increasingly the source of legitimacy for the party. And it's always been in the party's DNA, um, this concept, like this idea of without the Communist Party, there would be no new China. The, the party is the protector of the nation, the Chinese nation. Um, and so it's activating nationalism, activating ties between the party and the nation. And so that's why you see the, the emergence of, of young nationalists, especially in China. Yeah, that's been sort of the recipe for, for success with the population. At the elite level, another thing that's always been interesting about the CCP is it's sort of one of the few authoritarian regimes that has managed to transfer power uh, between, from leader to leader before they die. You know, most authoritarian leaders die in office, um, either of natural causes or maybe they, they lose power through a coup attempt. Very few authoritarian regimes institutionalize succession in the way that the CCP has managed to, at least over the last 30 years. But that's sort of the open question right now. And I think that leads us to one of your other questions is, is are those institutions that govern elites and allow elites to play nice with each other are those eroding um, under Xi Jinping? And I think there's pretty good evidence that they are. So do you think this is now the maybe the biggest weakness of the party that somehow with Xi Jinping, the future is uncertain? Yeah, I, I think we don't quite know. But I would say if I were looking at something, I think 2022, um, which is when Xi Jinping is slated, um, at least according to expectations, to leave the position of the general secretary of the CCP and then also the presidency of the People's Republic in March um, and the chairman of what's known as the Central Military Commission. So he's supposed to be giving up the head of state, head of party, head of military positions that he has. And we would have expected a successor in waiting to be signaled by now. Um, we were expecting that in 2017, 2018. So for the first time in decades, there is no real clear um, next generation of leaders that have been elevated and seem poised to take power for the next decade. Now there's different reads on this. One read is, okay, Xi Jinping is doing a power grab and other elites are gonna fight back and things might get ugly. There might be elite splits, public division, coup attempts, sort of messy stuff that we might not observe unless it comes to fruition. I mean, one thing about coup, coup attempts is you don't observe them unless they succeed. So for all we know, there have been coup attempts in the last five to 10 years and there's some speculation that there have been. Um, but just from kind of a, a political science sort of authoritarian theory perspective, if you see an authoritarian leader consolidate power at the expense of other elites, we would expect to see some pushback. And so 2022 is a big question mark. Does she maintain, does he stay in power? Do other elites go along with it? Do they fight back? Or do we observe you know, something resembling a relatively normal succession? I think if we do observe that, um, it's important to, to note that no matter what happens, Xi Jinping is going to be a major player and effectively the player until his death. I mean, there's no world in which he gives up power to someone he doesn't fully trust 
um, because that would leave him vulnerable. And so my expectation um, is that either he stays in power or we see the appointment of a Xi Jinping lackey that he's able to kind of control a little bit behind the scenes. You mentioned Xinjiang and, and also Hong Kong. And you said that when you've been talking about Beijing Olympics, that maybe at the time uh, we have been looking at the somewhat less authoritarian uh, version of the of the CCP. Do you think that this less authoritarian version of the CCP would be doing the same in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong as we are observing now? I think one thing that's important to know about the party is that there's always been sort of two versions of what it looks like and how China should be governed. And there's a, some writing on this in political science, but this is sometimes referred to as sort of the Guangdong model after a senior leader that used to, to um, govern there, Wang Yang. And then there's another model, which is sometimes referred to as the Chongqing model um, after uh, Bo Xilai and kind of his model of governance. But these are models that have been around for longer than that. And, and the basic models are, there's one model where the party allows, you know, a little more breathing room. Things are a little more open. It allows civil society to emerge. Um, it develops consultative institutions with the population and is a little bit less repressive. And through that aims to promote economic development and, and stability and um, maybe curb corruption. There's another model, which is more sort of almost old school authoritarian, old, you know, Maoist in some sense, which relies a lot more on political education, indoctrination and propaganda, promoting kind of red culture, so to speak, um, and a reliance on um, kind of more brutish elite politics and repression. And Xi Jinping is firmly in that camp and has been that way ever since he came to power. You could argue that Hu Jintao was in the former. And so, but let's not gloss over a lot of the repression that was occurring under Hu Jintao. Too. I mean, if you talk to members of the Falun Gong or folks in Tibet, you know, I, I think we can't, we, we, the, the contrast isn't quite that drastic, but I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing sort of the heavy handed repression in Xinjiang and Hong Kong in particular uh, under Xi Jinping, because I think it fits with his style of government. And it's also, I think what we've realized um, in the Western community is that the West has little to no influences in, in terms of domestic policy, politics outcomes in China, little to no. You know, there's a lot of uproar over Hong Kong, perhaps the US could have done more, but the party's going to do what it's going to do. And an Olympic boycott, all of these things, it, it won't matter. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do those sorts of things and be critical of what's going on in China, because that's consistent with our own values. But I think it's important for Westerners to realize like, there's very sanctions, all of these things, there's very little I think the West can do to influence the trajectory of domestic politics in China. Maybe that's a little too cynical, but I, that's, that's sort of where I, what I believe. You have used the term red culture. How important is the adjective communist in the name of the party? What's next for CCP? I, people, it's funny. I mean, in the US now, people refer to China itself as communist China. And it's sort of a Cold War mentality that's settled in in a lot of policy circles here. China is led by a, a communist party. And on paper in the Communist Party Charter, it says that the realization of communism remains the long-term goal of, of the CCP. But it's everybody knows that that's not true. Um, do I see a world in which one day the CCP reappropriates capital and then 
kind of pursues collectivization and all the policies of the Mao era. No, no. I mean, this is a market economy with high levels of state intervention and subsidies and so forth. So people debate whether it's really market economy, but it's not a, a communist economic system in any, or social, you know, that kind of economic system in any meaningful way. So the question is, should we call it communist because the communist party says it's communist? That's why I use the word authoritarian because I just think it's clearer. And I think that that kind of crystallizes what's important, which is that this is a government that doesn't rely on elections, that doesn't conceive of human rights the way that the West does, um, that places individual rights subservient to the needs of the state and the party. Um, and that's what matters. I, I, don't think the, I don't think there's some ideological competition about the economic, you know, what, what type of economic system is most viable. I think the competition is about democracy and authoritarianism. And that's, that's what matters. In terms of where's the party headed, yikes, I don't know. I, I, um, I think we're in the Xi Jinping era until he's, he, he's di he dies or is violently removed. And that could last another two years. It could last another 15 to 20. And I think as long as we're in that era, we're going to see more of the same. We're going to see heavy-handed repression at home. I think we're seeing the rise of what people are calling techno-authoritarianism, where the party is increasingly relying on big data, artificial intelligence to surveil the population. And so this is going to make protests and revolution and all those, those sort of traditional mechanisms for regime change even more difficult. Um, so I don't think revolution in China is a real possibility anytime in the near future. I, I'm very pessimistic about that. And then on the international stage, we're going to see China continue to flex its muscles, probably maybe be more assertive with respect to Hong Kong and, and potentially even Taiwan. And I, I think that fits Xi Jinping's brand. Um, now, the question is, the one thing that I would close on maybe is just to say that there has been a backlash to all of this in the West. You know, there's, it's no coincidence that Western governments, academic institutions, journalists, businesses are increasingly wary of China and working Why is with this happening? I think it's because of Xi Jinping. I, I think people have realized what China is under, under him and public opinion in the West about China is, is, is at an all-time low. I believe it's been trending in a negative direction for a long time and COVID just accelerated that. You know, you have the Western population, there's very few constituencies politically that say, oh, we need to be working with this government. We need to be working with China. I mean, in the U.S., the debate is now constrained to be like, which way should we be tough on China? There's almost nobody saying, oh, this is a government we need to be engaging with. And I think it's, it's I would say historically, I have been someone who, who tends to favor cooperation and engagement and the building of human relationships, because I think those things are important. But it's hard to make the case, you know, I, and I, I find my own opinion has changed in the last few years. Like, how do you make a case that this is a government we should be working with when they're detaining hundreds of thousands of Muslims on the basis of their religion? And they don't think it's wrong. They think it's completely fine. You talk to Chinese officials, they don't even get why Westerners are remotely upset about this. And so China has changed. It's gotten worse, uh, more repressive. And I think that's accelerated the kind of antipathy towards China in the West. But it's important to remember, China goes through cycles. If you look at Chinese history, there are periods where things get pretty dark, closed and repressive, and then you know there's a breaking point. And then you see a new leadership come in and open things up, less repression, more engagement with the West, and then it goes back. So it's this pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth. And so we're in kind of a repressive cycle right now. 
perhaps one day um, that will create the space for someone who is a little bit more forward thinking to come into power. But I'm not holding my breath. And that might be a couple of years from now, that might be 20. And we just don't know. But no Cold War, right? Or maybe this is maybe inevitable, at least for some time. I'll just say a couple of things to me that about, about that, that that worry me. I think there's a lot of people in the United States in particular in US politics that are using the China threat for political gain, fear sells. And so they're they're talking about China in a certain way and they're, they're kind of ramping up anti-China hostility for political gain. Now, the reason why I it bothers me is because those folks also tend to be the same people that eroded US democracy. So it's it's quite striking to me that people will complain about authoritarianism in China. And then when the president tried to steal an election this fall, which is what had happened, they did nothing. They, they let it proceed and, and with very little pushback. And so I am worried about China. I'm worried about the CCP. But I think the China threat is a little bit inflated right now. I mean, I, am I worried about China invading the United States or attacking the United States or bombing? You know, no. I'm a little worried about Taiwan, but I, I don't think invasion is imminent or anything like that. And so I, I think I think we should be competing with China and perhaps China's rise will will produce um, some bipartisanship in the US and elsewhere um, that might make our government a little bit more functional. I mean, sometimes you need a competitor to to get you moving forward again. And maybe that that's the silver lining of all of this. If there's one thing that people in DC can agree about right now is that they don't like China. So maybe that's a silver lining, but there are costs to a cold war, right? Military buildup, the expenditures there that are diverted from other things that the, the American people probably need, um, like education and healthcare. Um, also the anti-China sentiment that affects our, the Asian American population, not just the Chinese American population. That's a real thing. Anti, anti um, AAPI hate crimes are, really significant right now. And that community feels like they're caught in the middle in the same way that Muslim Americans felt additional pressure following 9-11. I think this is, this is what's happening to the Asian Americans. I, I, I think we need to be realistic about what China is, what the party is, but also realistic and nuanced about the threat that China poses and, and not overreact and lose our values. And I think a lot of what we need to do, if, if there is a sense of sort of a competition between political models, democracy versus authoritarianism, we need to get our house in order. We need, we need to perfect our democracy and improve our democracy because people talk about the collapse of the party, the CCP and, and the, the eminent fall of uh, the CCP. I'm worried about the stability of democracy, not just in the US, but elsewhere. And it's fragile, democracy is fragile. And, and I think this, this past fall was a real, really close call. Um, for the United States. And so that's what I'd hope to see is people reinvesting in our democracy, you know, being nuanced about China. And I, I, don't, I, I don't welcome kind of Cold War rhetoric because I think it's just, just a little bit counterproductive. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcast, and on the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.